0: We are in a year-long series on prayer. And uh, do you ever feel like when you pray, do you feel a little bit like Oliver? You know, remember Oliver from Oliver Twist, the, the little orphan boy uh, who was shipped off to the workhouse when he was age nine. He uh, was there at the workhouse. And remember what they would eat at the workhouse? Uh, three meals a day of this thin gruel. They would get an onion twice a week. That's their vegetable and then a half of a dinner roll on Sunday. And you remember the story, probably the most famous scene in the the movie or the play or even the book is where the boys are all hungry and they draw lots to see who will go ask Mr. Bumble for more food. And of course, Oliver loses. And so he walks up and he's just kind of trembling with his bowl and he says, please, sir, I would like some more. And people are shocked at the audacity and impertinence of this little boy, I mean, you would have thought he had asked for the world and that they're outraged so much so that he shipped off to live and work with the undertaker Yes, he sleeps with the dead bodies in the caskets because he had done something so awful as to ask Mr. Bumble for more food. You know, Do you ever feel that way when we're in prayer? Oh, by the way, I saw an article in the paper, the true story, London Telegraph uh, came across this and here was the headline, Oliver Twist did not need any more food. Uh, The article cited experts that claim the typical workhouse diet would have been nutritionally sufficient for a growing nine-year-old. I checked the byline, it was not written by Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, and, And yet, you know, can you blame the boy wanting more food than the thin gruel? And yet, oftentimes when we pray, we feel like God is like that, saying, come on. You have what you need. What more do you want? You got a house, you got food, you know, what, what do you want? Stop your whining, sit down, eat your gruel. In this uh, passage, Jesus teaches us about prayer, and he teaches us, thankfully, that God is not like Mr. Bumble. <laughs> and so God is quite a bit different. And uh, in fact, instead of chastising us for asking God for things, Jesus instead invites us to pray and ask for more that actually one of our biggest problems is prayer is not that we're asking for for too much, we're actually praying for way too little. And so let's look at the passage as Jesus invites us to pray, and let's begin. As we look at the Lord's Prayer starting off, we see the first thing that Jesus teaches us to do is to pray big, to pray big. Now, Luke 11 opens, Jesus is praying, the disciples say, you know, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, it wasn't that they had never prayed. They were, these are good Jewish young men. They'd grown up praying all their lives, but they're hearing Jesus pray and they're saying, Something is different in how you pray and how we pray. Can you teach us how to pray? And Jesus teaches them the prayer that we now uh, call the Lord's Prayer. And as we've seen on other occasions, as we've looked at the Lord's Prayer this year, uh, the prayer is not a series of random requests. It is a a logical unit with one point building upon another. He begins by saying, Lord, hallowed be your name. That is, Lord, make your name holy. Hallowed be your name. How? Your kingdom come. That means bring your reign to earth so that on earth your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. And so ultimately what he's praying throughout this prayer, everything hinges on this point, is God, what we're asking you to do is to come and take this world as messed up and broken as it is where our people are doing things against your will where things are not right that you would come and you would bring your reign so that your will is done on earth even as it is done in heaven and so the bottom line the theme of this prayer is we're praying for God's reign to come we're not merely praying and asking God to heal one person we're praying and asking God to heal the whole world right I mean we're not just saying, Lord. Heal my friend here who's sick with cancer. We're saying, Lord, there's cancer throughout the whole world and we want you to bring your reign so that it is no more. We're not simply praying and saying, Lord, fix this one family. Give peace to this one family. We're saying, Lord, give peace to the whole world. We're not simply saying, Lord, protect our friends from Hurricane Dorian. We're saying, Lord, we want to live in a world where there are no Hurricane Dorians. And so we're praying for the reign of God, the kingdom of God to come, so that he fixes and heals all things. A world where people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue will be gathering together to praise God. Don't you long for that world. Some people do. Good. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we're longing for a world where God's reign is, is, is coming about perfectly. And, and so Jesus says that is how we're to pray. And, and so we, we usually just pray these little bitty tiny prayers. Lord, get me through this next test tomorrow. That's all I'm asking for. Uh, help me just make it this week. May I pay the bills this month. And God, Jesus saying, no, no, no. I mean, that's great. Pray those things. That's good. That's bringing the reign of Christ that particular thing. But we're wanting this whole world to be fixed to be made, made right. And so through this prayer, Jesus shows us that our problem is we're not asking for too much. We're asking for too little. We're begging for gruel when we should be praying for something far more. But then next, the uh, main thing that we're looking at is this, this, these parables, these teachings on prayer. And we see next that Jesus teaches us to pray shamelessly, shamelessly. You know, we think, again, when we go to prayer, we should be prim and proper. I'm coming before God the King. I better be dressed up. I better have it all together, and I better come before him and make sure my words are precise. And Jesus says, forget all that. You come shamelessly. And he tells a story about a a man and who's going on a journey. And the man uh, probably has been traveling after dark to avoid the heat. And he arrives after dark at his friend's house. And he's coming in unannounced because this is the days before cell phones, before landlines, before any of that. You know, so you couldn't tell when you're coming. And so he may not even know this friend was coming. He didn't text ahead of time. All of a sudden, he just knocks on the door in the middle of the night. And now you have this house guest in the middle of the night. In the ancient Near East, as well as the Middle East today, there's a premium on Hospitality. You, you had to feed the person. You were required. You, it doesn't matter that you didn't know they were coming. You had to do that. that. was Otherwise, you would lose face. And so here you have this unexpected house guest, and you have nothing to feed them. You can't just drop down to the 7-Eleven, King Supers closed, uh, Panera hasn't opened yet. Uh, there's no, no place to get bread. In fact, in a little town like this, they probably didn't even have a bakery. Instead, what families would do in little rural villages like this one is each morning, uh, they would get up and they would bake the amount of bread they needed for that day. They'd bake their daily bread. And so there'd be enough bread for that day, and by the end of the day, the bread would be gone. The next morning, they'd get up and bake the next amount of bread. And so this man comes, the bread is all gone, and so he has, has nothing to do. And so he says, I'm going to go borrow some bread from my friend. So he goes over to his friend's house. It is very late at night, uh, and he knocks on the door. Now, again, don't imagine this as your house. Instead, what the people lived in, more than likely in this case, was a one-room house, it might have been two rooms where the family was upstairs in the upper room, and the lower level is where the animals would be at night. But it was simply everybody was there together. And you get this picture because the man comes knocking on the door, and the friend says, What? Go away. Go away. My kids are here in bed with me. We all sleep in the same room. And he says, I need some bread. He goes, I don't care what you need. I'm not giving you any bread. My kids are asleep. Now, think about this. Those of you who have young children or have had young children, and you're thinking, I got this baby. I just got this baby to sleep. Once you get a baby to sleep, here's the cardinal rule in every family let sleeping babies sleep. Do not wake them up no matter what. You will, you will kill to keep the noise away. And the person is knocking on the door and he says, look, I need some bread. And he says, uh-uh, I am not getting up and getting you bread. I just got the children to sleep. Go away. And, and so Jesus says, now, even if he's not going to go away, because it, 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 well, uh, even if he won't give you bread because he's your friend, I mean, you give your friend bread. Yes, you give your friend bread, but I'm not waking up the baby. Over the friendship, but you will because of his persistence. But the word here he uses is not simply persistence. Uh, in fact, uh, the English Standard Version translates it as impudence. I, I, I love modern English translations that don't use modern English words. Like, when was the last time you talked about impudence? I mean, uh, what does impudence even mean? And uh, what it means is shamelessness, it, it means to come with a, a, a sense not just of humility, but of humiliation. You're coming, and you're so desperate. I mean, how desperate do you have to be to go knock on your neighbor's door at 2 o'clock in the morning asking for bread? I mean, you're pretty desperate. You don't care that you look bad. You don't care that your reputation is shot. You don't care what anybody thinks of you. I need this, and if I, I, I have to have it. I'm going to humiliate myself in order that I get this. And Jesus says, even if the man will not answer and give you the bread because of, uh, because of his friendship, he will because of the shamelessness. And that's how we're to pray. In prayer, we are shameless. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a um, professional wrestler who became governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura. I mean, imagine this. If you've ever watched WWE, imagine one of those guys as our as governor. and that, Minnesota. Some of you from Minnesota. I'm sure they're nice people there. Um, But this governor, and so Governor Jesse Ventura, and here's what he said about Christianity. He said, Christianity is a crutch for weak people. And people were outraged at this comment. Actually, that's some pretty doggone sound theology. Christianity is a crutch for weak people. Unless you see that you're weak, unless you see that you're desperate, unless you see you're needy, uh, you, you have no need of God. Uh, pr- prayer is not when we come before God and say, God, I've got 90, 95% of my life and it's all pretty much together, but I just kind of need this little help going over the top. You know, Lord, I've got this thing under control, but if you'll just help me with this. Uh, Lord, I, I'm, I'm doing pretty well with my job, so we don't need to talk about that right now, but I've got this five year old and I, I'm at my wits' end. Now, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is when we come before God and say, Lord, I'm a wreck, I'm a mess. I am so needy and dependent on you, I cannot do this without you. I am shameless. And so we're, we're to pray with a sense of shamelessness. Unless you're willing to admit you're weak, you'll never know God's strength. Unless you're helpless, you will always be hopeless. We come before God shameless. But shameless is not enough. If all you have is desperation, then all you have is despair. Uh, you can't, if you're only desperate, uh, then, then th- that's still going to be very hard to pray because you're not going to go knock on the door of someone if you're desperate unless you believe that person is likely to answer. And so Jesus next says we're to pray persistently. Persistently. Notice the progression. You've heard all of this uh, before probably. Jesus says we're to ask, we're to seek, and we're to knock. And, and notice this. Asking is simply making a request. And so we we ask, but then after you ask, uh, you're still, you might go seeking and and looking for it. And then after you're seeking, then you might go to the point of knocking. Think of it in terms of a small child. Uh, You have a a four-year-old boy and he needs his mom. At first, what does he do? He calls out, mommy, mommy. And then if he doesn't hear anything from mommy, what does the four-year-old do then? He starts wandering around the house Mommy, mommy, looking everywhere for her. Finally, he sees she's in her room and the door is closed and he can't open the door. What's the four-year-old do? He knocks. Mommy, 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 when does the four-year-old stop? The four-year-old doesn't stop. And that's the point. You keep knocking till they open the door. And Jesus says, that is how we're to be in prayer. We're to ask, we're to seek, we're to knock. And when we do that, God will answer. And, and so we're to be persistent in prayer. And so you might be thinking, well, why do I have to continually pray? You know, Paul says we're to pray without ceasing. Why, why can't I just, Lord, here's what I need, and, uh, and you understand it. I don't need to keep bothering you about this. Or, in fact, even why do I even need to tell him that I need it? I mean, he already knows, right? Or you might put it more crassly, why does God make us grovel and beg? Well, the point of persevering in prayer is not that we wear God down with our requests. Four year olds can do that, right? That's not the point. God is more uh, durable than we are persistent. That's not the point. The point is, as we persist in prayer, we're realizing that we are always dependent on God. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? He said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Uh, whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do only a few things. That's not it, right? Apart from me, you can do, you can do nothing. Now that's God's word. We believe the Bible, right? Yeah. <laughs> you guys are making me really nervous today. Um, <laughs> yes, we believe the Bible. We believe it is true. So apart from me, I can do. Nothing. Now, if I really believe that apart from him I can do nothing, then that means I need him for everything. And so if that's true, then I'm going to be praying about everything. So here's the, the interesting thing is the problem is, is, is not that we are so insecure and needy. The problem is that we're so arrogant to think that we don't need him. We cannot do anything without the Lord. You know, think about your, your job. Some of you are great engineers and you have the, that brilliant mind but do you understand that you cannot do engineering without the Holy Spirit working in you? That you're desperate for him to do your job? Some of you command people in the military. Man, that's a job. And sometimes you can get to the point, I'm well trained, I've got this figured out, I've got the experience. No, you're a Christian, you need God. Some of you are parents. Now if that won't make you pray, I don't know what will, right? Uh, whatever it is, we are, we are dependent on him. And, and that's you say, I feel so weak. You're made to be dependent on him. Just as a tree is dependent on water, just as your body is dependent on air, we are dependent on God. That is how we are designed. It's not a, it is not a design flaw. It's built into who we are. So apart from him, we can do nothing. We, we, we must never think that the Christian life is something we do for God. We must never think that Christian life is something we do apart from God. The Christian life is always something we do in God. In fact, the repeated refrain over and over and over again in the Apostle Paul's writing to describe who we are as Christians is we are in Christ, in him. We are united to him in this vital union where we get from him uh, his righteousness. He gets our sinfulness, which he paid for on the cross, and we have our life by being united to him. We are in him. So we pray persistently as an expression of that union with Christ. And finally, we pray expectantly, expectantly. Again, Jesus uh, tells another bit of a humorous story, and he reminds us that God is not um, uh, a miserly with his blessings. He is not Mr. Bumble. Uh, He is not even a friend who's reluctant to come to our aid. Rather, he's the father who delights to give good gifts. Notice what he says. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, and you say, Dad, I'm hungry, do you mind if I eat a fish? And he says, sure, here's a rattler, enjoy that instead. I mean, what father's going to do that? Or your kid says, man, I need something for breakfast, do we have any eggs? Sure, son, have this scorpion. I mean, it, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, what kind of father would do that? Yes, there are some cruel fathers in the world, but the majority of fathers... The majority of fathers love their children and are not going to treat them so cruelly. And so Jesus says, if we being evil, if we are sinful creatures who are selfish, who who look after our own desires more than the desires of others, if even we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will a heavenly father give the spirit to those who ask? Now, one of my, my great joys in life is being a father to three girls. Uh, it, it really is. <laughs> Some of you are laughing. Yeah, sure. No, it really, it really is. But I, I will admit, you know, it, it's, it's work. It, 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 it is work. Um, children are a bit of a hassle. They're, they're expensive. Uh, you know, dance lessons, soccer teams, uh, medical bills, uh, helping with homework, uh, you know, sports, all those things. Diapers. You know, if your child, if you have a child, that your child was born in 2015, that it will cost you on average on average $315,000 to raise that child to 17. And I don't know why they stopped at 17 cuz they ston- surely don't stop at 17. I mean the bills keep coming, right? I mean, you know, then there's college and then there're weddings and then there's stuff and uh, and 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 it never it never ends. And uh, and so, you know, kids not only cost you money, but But freedom, I mean, you know, you you meet a parent of a a one-year-old, and you can tell they have these little suitcases that are right here. Uh, They're frazzled. Uh, It's, uh, you know, it's fatiguing to to raise children. It takes time. It takes commitment. And the emotional toll, Uh, my guess is, among those of you who are parents, you shed more tears over your children than you have over anything else in your life. And that's even if you had children who were really good. They, 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 it's just, a, it's just, a, it's taxing. It's a, it's a toll. And yet you wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, right? I, re- I remember when my children were sick and to be little and, and I wanted to be the one there caring for them. And you know, you get sick on, you get spit up on, and yet it's a privilege. You want to be there. You love your kids. Now, if, if we're like that and we love our children, how much more does our Father love us? And this takes us back to the very first thing that Jesus taught us in praying. When you pray, say, "Our Father, not Mr. Bumble. Our Father, the God who loves you, who cherishes you, who treasures you. He's not even your best friend that you try to wake up in the middle of the night or a neighbor. He's not a miser. He finds no joy in giving. We're coming to our Father. And so interestingly, in these verses, when Jesus talks about the Father's delight in giving good gifts to his children, he doesn't say, Go to the Father, and whatever you ask, he will give. In this passage, instead, what he says, How much more the Father delights in giving the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That's because the gift of the Spirit, God dwelling in us, is our greatest good, and in reality it's the cry of our hearts. Now, when we pray, Your kingdom come, one of the things we're praying there's Lord. Your kingdom come, that means he's the king, which means what? I'm not. And so when I'm praying, Lord, bring your kingdom, I'm saying, Lord, I'm asking you to reign in my life. I want your will to be done in my life. I want to submit to your will. Oftentimes we struggle. What is God's will? Well, a lot of times you're wondering about that with this job or that job, but a lot of God's will is spelled out pretty clearly. You shall not commit adultery. Pretty clear. You shall not lie. Pretty clear. God's will, in most cases, is pretty doggone clear. And so we're saying, Lord, bring your reign to my life. I want to live in submission to your will. And and we're asking for his reign. We're asking for God to rule over over all things. Uh, You know, the prayer for the spirit and the prayer for the kingdom of God are inseparable. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet Joel talks about this day when the kingdom of God will come. And in that same passage in Joel chapter 2, he talks about God giving his Holy Spirit to us and dwelling us uh, so that we might experience his life and his reign in our lives. And so when the kingdom comes, he's going to fill us with his spirit so we might know his forgiveness, his power, and provision. So remember, we're not simply praying, Lord, give us more gruel. We're not merely asking God to make us more comfortable in this broken world. We're saying, Lord, send your spirit, reign in my life and reign in this world to fix all that is broken here. Now imagine what it would look like. What would your, what would your life look like? How would it be different if God's kingdom were to come so that God's will is done in your life even as God's will is done in heaven? How would your family be different? If God's will were done in your family, just as it were being done in heaven. Can you imagine Colorado Springs, how trans- what the city would be like if the will of God were being fully accomplished in Colorado Springs, just as it is in heaven? What would our church be like? How would we be different? How would we be engaging with one another if we're engaging according to the will of God? Now again, one of the reasons we're reluctant to pray prayers like this is we forget that God is a loving father. We forget that, that God is one who who cherishes us. In fact, oftentimes when we pray, we pray and we think that God relates to us on the basis of our merit rather than his fatherhood. In other words, I might say, God, you may be a great and amazing father, but I'm not that good of a son. And so I'm not sure you're going to bless me because I I haven't been a good enough son to do, your, do uh, what I'm asking. And here's where we get totally confused. Remember, one of the prayers of the kingdom is, "And uh, Lord, forgive us even as we forgive others. Do you really believe God forgives? Do you really believe that the death of Christ has truly covered your sin? Uh, when we relate to God on the basis of our performance rather than on the basis of his love, we cannot pray, at least not with whole heart because uh, we, we know we're not lovable children. John Ortberg writes that a few decades ago, two mental health professionals discovered a, a new disorder. What happened was they were seeing a number of patients who were coming in, and uh, these people uh, were, had this persistent fear that they were going to be exposed as frauds. They'd work hard, they'd tinker, they'd do the things they needed to do in order to, to do well, but no matter what happened, they still had this fear that they were going to be exposed. In fact, the high-achieving people actually were worse off at this than the people who did not achieve very much. In other words, the more they achieved, the more fearful they were that they were going to be exposed. And so uh, this was diagnosed and later given a name as the imposter phenomenon. And it's not just a mental disorder, it's an epidemic. It's the haunting belief that I'm not smart enough, tough enough, kind enough, good enough, or successful enough or at least as successful and good and kind as I've led other people to believe, that other people look at me and they see me, but if they knew the real me, they would not love me. And so we—we, we, uh, in fact, what happens is they found is the more you craft this false image that is pleasing to people, and the more you win the approval of other people, the more isolated and unloved you feel. Isn't that bizarre? The more you're, you, you have a great Instagram story, the more lonely you feel. The more people are buying your Facebook profile, the more isolated you are. And so many of us walk into church on Sunday, and by the way, you look great. You dress nice, you're smiling pretty, your kids are adorable, your marriage looks like it's all together. And uh, you walk in and you get here and uh, you're smiling and you'll share a prayer request and they will be, uh, you, know, you know, it'll be meaningful. But the truth is you walk in and you're going, I'm a wreck. And, but you look around at everybody else, but they all seem to have it together. I'm not like them. What if they find out that I don't have it together? What if they find out how I talk to my children? What if they find out what's going through my head's? my head, and we feel like an imposter. And even more, even though we can keep up the image here, when we go to pray, you're naked and exposed. I mean, there's no hiding from God. Your fig leaves will not cover you. He sees and he knows already. And why would I want to go and pray before a God who sees me and knows me and who could not possibly ever love me When I'm this kind of a fraud. Christian, here's the good news. He does know you're not fooling him. He's not tricked. We might be all fooled, but he's not fooled, and he loves you. The Lord's prayer is true. Forgive us, O Lord, and he does. Our union with Christ is true, that when you put your faith in Christ, you become so united to him that you've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. And instead of putting on the fig leaves of your own cover-up, of your own good works and your own performance, God strips all that pretense away and he gives to you the robe of Christ's righteousness. And when the Father looks at you, he looks at you the same way the groom at the front of the church looks and he sees this bride coming down the aisle. That's the gospel truth. And when we believe that truth, we will pray. We pray. We pray big. We're not asking for little things. We're asking, Lord, fix everything. Fix this broken world. We pray, and we pray uh, shamelessly. Lord, I need you. I am desperate. I cannot do this on my own. We pray persistently. Lord, I am dependent, and I'm going to keep coming and coming and coming. But finally, we pray expectantly because we're praying to our Father, and he loves us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you. That you are a great God who loves your children. Lord, we forget that. So often we come to you, instead of believing the gospel of grace, we believe the the bad news of, of works and we think that you relate to us on the basis of our performance rather than on the basis of Christ's performance. And if that's true, how could we ever expect anything from you? Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us a new and beautiful vision of your goodness, of your glory that we would come and see you so that we could come and pray expectantly. We pray, O Lord, that you would come and you would reign in our lives so that we would live lives that are honoring and pleasing to you, not as a way to earn your favor, but out of full faith that you do love us and you do care for us. O Lord, we pray, teach us to pray. And I pray for my friends here today, for all of us, that this week we would make good use of the privilege of prayer that we would pray with a sense of shamelessness and yet a sense of joyful expectancy because we're coming before you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.